and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. This is Trisha, and I wish that I could go see a gig-ass coup test someday. Me too. What's that? It's a mythical beast with two short legs and two long legs so it can climb hills easily. Oh. So I don't know where I would see one, but it would be cool to see a gig-ass coup test. It would be. And I don't know from which mythology that comes from. Yeah. I don't know enough about words, like root words. Is it Greek? Is it Roman? Is it Celtic? I don't know. I don't know either. All those things. Do you think the front legs are short or long? I know, right? I'm thinking they're probably short. To go up hills? I feel like long legs might be helpful to get down hills, but short legs would be helpful to get up hills. I wonder if we can find a picture of one of these mythical beasts. Hang on a second. I'm going to look. I'm going to pause. So neither of us were right. Their legs are short on one side, so they, like, climb up sideways. <laughs> right. Like the crazy goats on the side of rock cliffs. Yeah. Except with their legs are different lengths. On Yeah, like, on the sides, not the front or the back. Interesting. A side hill toggler. <laughs> this is the saying on this one. Anyways. Yeah. Now I want to see one even more. Right. Well, let me get back to um, why we're really here besides discussing amazing mythological creatures, which could be a fun podcast as well. Yes. But we are back for Teresa Noor part two. But before we get into that, Mm -hmm. I have a question for you. Yes. I'm going to make it a nice and easy one today. Sweet action. What is one of your favorite smells? I mean, I want to say rain, but I feel like everybody says rain. You know, like when it hits the ground and that ozone smell. Yes, that is nice. So let me think of something a little. um, Okay, I'll tell you one that, you know, like is one of those ones that people like to get high on. Mm -hmm. Nail polish. Hmm. Okay. I don't like gasoline, but I like the smell of nail polish. (laughs) All right. And I don't huff it, but I can see why someone might. Okay, I can get that. There you go. What about you? Mm -hmm. Um, I was thinking one that I really like that not everyone does is I really like um, like the citrus grapefruit kind of scent. So it's like, like almost from a grapefruit or like a candle that's like from that a way. grapefruit, but also the candles too. I've had both and I like them. I don't like grapefruit mm-hmm. to eat. Do you like to eat it? I do like to eat it too. So mm-hmm. I don't know that if I'm on board with that. I like orange. See, I don't really like orange that much. Do you like lemon? I do like lemon and lime. Hmm. You don't like orange. Eh. I don't really like to eat oranges either. Unless they're the little, like, cutie mandarin oranges. Do you ever get orange juice? Rarely. You get grapefruit juice? Sometimes. You'd rather have a greyhound than a screwdriver? Yep. Okay. Yeah. I'll have my nail polish on my hand with grapefruit. Sounds like a plan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, like I said, we're back for part two. Um... Before we dive in, Courtney, do you want to give like a little recap? Yes. So in part one, we learned that Teresa Noor had a very sad childhood. Um, she, Her father was diagnosed with Parkinson's when she was very young and required a lot of just support. And then her mom died suddenly when she was just a teenager, and that hit her really hard. And so to escape the uncertainty and poverty that she was living in, she got married at 16, popped out a couple kids, then 
shot and killed her husband, was charged with his murder, and then acquitted of his murder. Went on to get married again, have a few more kids, eventually um, marrying and being divorced four times, and having six kids by the time she is in her mid-twenties. And then she has a boyfriend who is wealthy but a little weird, and they have a big breakup. She kind of goes off the deep end a little bit, has a nervous breakdown, and when she kind of starts to snap out of the depression part, she's got quite the violent streak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he was like in the occult, or she claimed he was in the occult? Yeah, he was was like interested in it. Okay, Mm -hmm. okay. Okay, well, Teresa's 17-year-old daughter, Susan, somehow survives being shot in the chest and left in that bathtub (laughs) for a month. She's finally allowed out of the bathroom. She doesn't go far, though, as Teresa, paranoid that Susan will run away again and tell what happened, keeps her tied to her bed frame. Teresa was in total control of her every move, including when she was allowed to eat, bathe, and have contact with her siblings. After months of confinement, Susan begged her mother to just let her leave the house once. Teresa, always thinking of herself, didn't want to risk anyone finding the bullet in Susan's back and leaking it back to her. So she made a deal. Susan could leave if she allowed Teresa to remove her bullet first. Susan agreed. Oh, Courtney, it's that weird need for control again. Obviously, no real love seems to be felt by this woman. Even wife beaters allow their wives to go to the hospital. You know, somewhere along the line, I think Teresa stopped thinking of Susan as a daughter and started thinking of her as a threat. She was a threat because she challenged Teresa's authority by running away. And she was a threat to Teresa's self-esteem as a woman by being young and pretty and possibly having had a sexual relationship with her ex-boyfriend, Chester, which would have been sexual abuse, by the way. Do you think that happened? I think it did. It was never explicitly stated, but it was alluded to in the book. With the help of her sons, Teresa laid Susan on the kitchen table and with no anesthesia, painkillers, or antiseptic of any kind, used a box cutter, a box cutter, to dig the bullet out of Susan's back. Then she handcuffed her to a table leg and left her lying on the floor. Susan, already in a weak state, was not able to get up herself, and quickly an infection set in. Teresa forbade the other children from feeding or tending to her and put her in diapers to reduce the mess. After a few days, Susan was too ill ill to even lift her head. At that time, Teresa repeated her old accusations of Susan being a witch and that the only way to cleanse her soul was through fire. Courtney, do you think she's delusional or faking that she has these thoughts about her being a witch? You know, I have questioned this a little. The way the book presents it suggests that she did truly believe these things about her daughter and that these delusional beliefs were likely due to maybe an alcohol-induced psychosis. And maybe that is true. But so many of Teresa's behaviors seem very calculated. And I wouldn't be surprised if she repeated these things out loud so that others believed that she had a reason for her cruelty other than just being cruel. Teresa called her eldest son, Howard, who came over and along with Robert and Sheila packed up some of Susan's belongings and trash bags and they all loaded into the family car with Susan laying across their laps in the back seat. Teresa drove up to the forested hills and found a semi-secluded area where she pulled over. 
A few yards off the side of the road, Teresa and her children dumped, a, dumped the bags of Susan's clothes and belongings on the ground, placed her emaciated but still living body on top of them, and then lit it all on fire. They watched them burn for the f- or they watched the fire burn for a few minutes and then drove home, leaving Susan's dead and burned body in the woods. A passing motorist saw the body the next day and reported it to the police, but there was no identifying information and the body was too badly burned for things like fingerprints. So she was logged as a Jane Doe and her case was cold. Courtney, what's going on with the kids? It's like the cult mentality at this point with them. I mean, you could compare how this family functioned as kind of cult-like. Teresa, the narcissistic leader, you know, manipulated her children through physical and mental abuse into believing that they were worth nothing without her and that following her rules was the only way to survive. That back and forth between abusive and tender caring behaviors is a big part of this. And it's something that we often see in like marriages where there's domestic violence. You can think about the cycle where it's like, it's all honeymoon, Mm -hmm. flowers, I love you, you're the best. And then violence happens and then you're so sorry and Mm -hmm. things are good for a while and then it just continues on and on. Um, It's the same cycle here. But ultimately, I think that survival was the main motivator for these young people. They saw what their mother did to their siblings and they knew that if it wasn't the sibling or if they refused to do what their mom said, that they would be the ones getting the the abuse. Meanwhile, Teresa and her children never talked about what happened and Teresa just moved on with her life as though Susan never existed. She continued to control her household and children with an iron fist, doling out beatings as she saw fit. Now, Teresa was not able to work due to her alcoholism and poor health, so she relied on her son Robert to provide money by dealing drugs and committing burglaries, and her daughter Sheila to provide by working as a sex worker. Ironic, since the insults she used to throw at her daughters were about being promiscuous and slutty. Anyway, with Susan, um, without Susan to be her punching bag, Teresa had to find a new target for her rage. That target was Sheila, her 19-year-old daughter. She fit the bill perfectly. She was young thin, and still desirable to men, all the things Teresa was not. Teresa took every opportunity to break Sheila down, physically and mentally. She would send Sheila out to work the streets, take her money, and then belittle her for doing sex work and accuse her of having sexually transmitted diseases. Her alcohol and drug-fueled delusions came to a head one day. Teresa became convinced that Sheila was pregnant, which she wasn't. She screamed at her and beat her with her fists for hours demanding that Sheila, quote, come clean and admit that she was pregnant. Eventually, Sheila relented and stated that she was pregnant, but of course, Teresa didn't believe her confession. This is the essence of gaslighting. So, further enraged, Teresa threw Sheila in a tiny storage closet and locked the door. So, Courtney, when I was reading this, this brought up something that I hadn't really thought of before. You know, when police interrogate a suspect to the point that they confess to crimes they don't commit, aren't they too kind of guilty of gaslighting i mean or does gaslighting have to be done with the knowledge that the person did not do something meaning the cops may actually believe that someone is guilty and therefore it would not be gaslighting that is a very interesting thing to think about um but yes gaslighting can be used during police investigations you know the effects of gaslighting are essentially to make a person doubt their own beliefs memories or sanity kind of eventually And we know police can use lies and manipulation in interrogations, 
and sometimes that can lead to a victim starting to doubt their own memory and start to believe what the police are saying happened. Gaslighting is still gaslighting, even if it's not completely intentional. Okay, so you answered my question being, does it like gaslighting have to be when the perpetrator or the person doing the gaslighting knows that the person didn't do the thing, but you're saying it's not. It's it, just making someone doubt their own. Yep. Making someone doubt their, their, their own, own beliefs or memories or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So then I do think that does happen. <laughs> Absolutely. Sheila was locked in the closet for four days in the middle of the summer. She had no food or water and the other kids were being firmly told that they were not allowed to help her. Finally, when Teresa was out of the house for a short time, her youngest child, Terry, who was then only 15 years old, broke the rules. She opened the closet to check on her sister. Sheila was drenched in sweat, dehydrated, and in pain from being forced to crouch for four days in the small space. Terry gave Sheila a beer, but she was too weak to even drink it, and Terry described her as hallucinating and talking nonsense. Before she could do anything else for Sheila, Terry heard her mother's car arrive, so she quickly uh, locked the closet door with Sheila back inside. A few hours later, the family heard a loud thump from the closet, Um, and that was Sheila attempting to climb the shelves, and then she fell. But Teresa ordered everyone to ignore it. Two days later, Teresa finally opened the closet door and found Sheila's lifeless body. True to form, Teresa did not call an ambulance or show any grief or remorse about the death of her other daughter. She again called her sons, Howard, Robert, and Billy, to help dispose of the body. This time, the boys gathered the body into a large cardboard box that Billy brought home from his job at a local movie theater, drove the box to a deserted parking lot, and left it in the bushes. Just like Susan, Sheila's body was uh, was found soon after being dumped, but there was no identification, and she was also dubbed a John Doe. Sorry, Jane Doe. While the boys were out disposing of the body for their mother, Terry, her last surviving daughter, was tasked with cleaning any and all remnants of Sheila from the closet and the rest of the house. Naturally, Terry, being the only girl left, became the next target for Teresa's abuse. One incident, she describes, was being handcuffed under a desk while her mother, all 250 pounds of her, jumped on her stomach over and over. The injury she sustained from this attack impacted her ability to have children later in life. Good God, this woman is insatiable with the need to conflict harm on her daughters. I mean, she must get off on it. About a year after Sheila's death, Teresa became anxious and paranoid about being found out and was convinced that there was still evidence in the small apartment they lived in. At uh, 3.40 a.m. on September 29, 1986, she packed up some of her things and she had Robert, Billy, and Terry do the same. Once the car was loaded, she forced uh, Terry to go back inside and light the apartment on fire. She escaped through a small window in the back. Fortunately, the fire did not spread to the other buildings nearby, and it did not completely destroy everything in the apartment. When police came to investigate, they also discovered that Teresa was three months behind on her rent and had recently received an eviction notice. So this isn't arson because, or I mean not arson, um, pyromania or whatever it's called now because she's not like getting off on the fire. No, it's strictly covering up evidence. Yeah, she's just a mean to an ends of evidence. Yes, it is arson, however. That's, I meant pyro. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was thinking mental health-wise. But of course, she didn't do it. Terry right. did it, so she right. can't be blamed. Yeah. After this, the family pretty much scattered. Billy went to live with his girlfriend and cut off contact with pretty much everyone else. Terry took her sister Susan's ID and used it to pass as 18, but initially turned to sex work to get by. Teresa and Robert are the only two that stayed together moving to Carmichael, California, and then to Reno, Nevada. 
Howard stayed in Sacramento with his wife and kids. None of the family stayed in regular contact beyond a few years. Teresa changed her appearance, often wearing wigs and dyeing her hair blonde. While they were living in Reno, Teresa and her son Robert, now, uh, who is now 19, um, started to drift apart. Her seemingly compulsive need to control her children seemed to have burned up in the fire, just like the apartment. Robert started getting into trouble with the law and was arrested for things like theft and assault. When police showed up at Teresa's apartment one day looking for Robert, she decided that Reno was no longer a safe place and she moved to Salt Lake City. Courtney, what do you think about her need for control evaporating? Was it maybe that since her daughters were no longer around, it was like out of sight, out of mind? You know, when Teresa's family fell apart and scattered, it's almost like she was able to like reset. There was no more competition with her daughters to be concerned about, and she was no longer tied down with having to raise children. She was free to control her own life and not have to care about anyone else. And so with nobody around to control, she didn't have the need anymore. Once in Utah, Teresa reverted to using her birth name, so Teresa Cross. She got a job working as a live-in health aide for an elderly woman. She discovered that the family of this woman was worth millions of dollars, and she charmed her way into the family. She was very secretive about her past, but did a good job at first and won their trust. Teresa attended a local college and became a certified nurse's aide. Teresa kept up the charade of being functional for some time, but was let go when she took an extended vacation and left her ward alone. The nurse who replaced her believed that Teresa had been abusive, claiming, quote, I think she was sometimes physical with Alice. I have no doubt that she slapped her a few times and used to leave her on the toilet for hours. So clearly her cruelty and dominating personality had not completely disappeared. Right. Take it out on another vulnerable population. Yep. Uh, oops. Sorry. Teresa got other jobs as a nurse's aide, caring for elderly people, starting her next long-term gig in the fall of 1992. She really ingratiated herself into the Sullivan family, becoming more like a friend than an employee. She spent holidays with them, vacationed with them, and they even loaned her some extra money from time to time. Her small room in the house was filled with designer clothes and makeup. Bud Sullivan, the homeowner, commented this about her vast wardrobe. Many of her dresses, skirts, and pants were red. Red was her favorite color. It tended to be a very crimson shade of red, the color of blood. Meanwhile, Terry Knorr, her remaining daughter, had cleaned up her life, gotten married, and in a strange coincidence, moved with her new husband to Salt Lake City. Over the years, Terry had tried to tell, tell her story of what her mother did to her and her siblings to authorities, friends, social workers, and doctors, but nobody ever believed her. Finally, on June 26, 1990, Terry broke down and told her best friend Heidi all about it, and Heidi did believe her. She called her friend, a member of the local sheriff's department. This officer, Clarence Montgomery, also believed her. He took a recording of the interview to his chief, who sent it with a letter to the Sacramento Police Department. The Sacramento Police Department did assign a detective. However, the information was sent to the wrong county, so they had no record of any murders matching the description. She felt helpless when she never got a call from the detectives. I mean, Courtney, who would make up something like that? It's just so frustrating when people aren't believed. It is so frustrating. And I think that unfortunately there were two things working against Terry when she tried to report what happened. First was that she had struggled with drug addiction and mental illness. So, you know, some people in authority may have just written off her story as like drug-addled delusions. And secondly... 
some of the things that Teresa did to her children are just so outrageous that people had a hard time believing that any mother would be capable of such things. That's true. Then in 1993, Terry decided to think, take things into her own hands and try to bring her mother to justice. She called the sheriff's department in Nevada County, California, and told the officer who answered the phone the whole story. Fortunately, this officer had been around a while and recognized the description of Susan's murder as potentially match her, matching a cold case in a neighboring county. He also looked through records and found that Sheila's murder had been falsely attributed to a serial killer who had been in the area at the time. In October 1993, Sergeant per Perea of Nevada County and Sergeant John Fitzgerald of Place County got together and started investigating Terry's claims. Courtney, do you know which serial killer that was? So the book didn't name the killer, just referred to him as the Texan. Um, but I did a little digging on the internet, and some sources say that it could have been Benjamin Boyle, who was a trucker who was eventually convicted of two murders, one in Texas and one in California. And supposedly, Boyle confessed to killing the Jane Doe in the box, who turned out to be Sheila. But he didn't actually kill her. I wonder if it was a false confession, uh, confession on purpose, or if he was gaslighted by the police and just doing it. I don't know. But anyways. The detective flew out, to, flew out to Utah to talk to Terry in person, and she was able to provide detailed accounts of her siblings' belongings, appearance, and what she knew about the murders. Back in California, they reviewed evidence, including returning to the apartment that Teresa had tried to burn down. Despite it being seven years later and the apartment being rebuilt, police, with Terry's help, found blood evidence from Sheila's death under the floorboards and new carpet in the tiny closet where she died. They interviewed Howard and Billy and others known to the family, and in November 1993, murder charges, charges were filed. The main problem, however, was that they had no idea where Teresa was living now, so they went to the public for help. They aired a piece on America's Most Wanted, posted ads in newspapers, and Terry even spoke on the local news in Utah about what her mother had done. And it came as a shock, Teresa, when she saw her youngest daughter on TV you know, on the local news accusing her of torture and murder. The next morning, on November 5th, 1993, Teresa asked for a loan of $4,600 from her employer, claiming she needed to pay a large tax bill. She then took off, leaving her elderly ward stranded, but was pulled over and arrested on suspicion of DUI. After being seen, wave, you know, she was weaving in and out of traffic. That's why she was pulled over. Unfortunately, because she was not actually drunk and was using the name of Cross as her last name, the police department released her and she returned back to her home um, in a taxi. A few days later, detectives were able to connect Teresa Knorr to the Utah driver's license under the name Teresa Cross. They had her address and a description of the car registered in her name. They set up stakeouts in the neighborhood and at the post office where she had a P.O. box. Finally, on November 9th at around 5.15 p.m., a detective tracked Teresa down at her place of employment and arrested her for the murders and tortures of her two daughters. She surrendered without a fight and was taken to the Salt Lake City Jail, awaiting extradition back to California. At her arraignment, she was denied bail. Teresa attempted to fight against her extradition and claimed she was innocent, but on December 18th, she and the detectives boarded a plane for Sacramento. Along with Teresa... Two of her sons, Robert and Billy, were also charged in connection with the murder of their sisters. Robert, who was already serving a 16-year-to-life sentence for a separate murder, so he had killed a man during a bar fight, pled guilty and received an additional three years. 
Billy, who was still a minor at the time of his sister's death, was charged as a juvenile and was given probation and mandated therapy. Teresa was also suspected for a while of being involved in the murder of her sister Rosemary, who was strangled to death in 1983, but she was later cleared for that. Courtney, was there any type of testing done on her? She seems like the type to try to plead insanity. So... Teresa was evaluated by a forensic psychologist, uh, just like a routine eval to prove mental state, and was found to be legally sane, Um, although insanity was something that her and her defense team had discussed. Um, But as far as diagnosis goes, you know, different sources have given different answers. Some say that she had paranoid schizophrenia, others suggest borderline personality disorder or bipolar disorder. And I could see how those could have been suggested. I just don't agree with them. Um, I couldn't find any actual report from any evaluation, though. Um, So this is all just kind of based on my own opinion. Um, And based on my research and my impression, um, I believe that Teresa Noor struggled with major depressive disorder, severe alcohol addiction, and narcissistic personality disorder. But she didn't cross into the antisocial. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's my phone. I mean, that's a good question. You just didn't throw it on there. I didn't I'm throw it on there. I'm just used to seeing that on everything that we do. It's true. I really, it probably should be on there. Yeah. She definitely displayed criminal no behavior and no remorse. And I mean, she would like do the whole I'm so sorry type of thing Mm -hmm. but was she really no she wasn't sorry at all I don't think so yeah no remorse yeah you should probably throw that on there too pattern of criminal behavior right there was that okay I mean they most of the time seem like they do that's true yes so eventually on October 17th 1995 Teresa Noor pled guilty to murder in exchange for avoiding the death penalty, and was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. She is currently being held at the California Institution for Women in Chino. She is currently 77 years old. She was denied parole in 2019. Terry Knorr, which is just sad, the daughter, she died of a heart attack in 2011 at the age of 41. So her mom outlived her. Yep, mom's still alive, which is... (sighs) She had such a hard life. It's the biggest like injustice that yeah. that Terry is gone and Teresa is still alive. Right. And it sounded like, you know, Terry worked really hard on like uh making a life for herself. Yeah. I mean she did you know, she was married twice. She did not have children. Yeah. Um, but she worked and she went to therapy and was dealing with her PTSD mm-hmm. and trying to do the best that she could. I mean ultimately she got her mother convicted. She did. If it wasn't for her they're yeah they're, they weren't Teresa, even looking for like nope. at least with um the one that the they had the serial killer for they weren't even looking for her murderer yeah whatever right so. they didn't know that their two sisters were even dead yeah what do you think about um what the brothers got if that was fair i do think that was fair um you know robert sort of did fall down that antisocial mm-hmm. kind of path and was involved in, in criminal activity from yeah. a pretty young age. Um, and so, you know, his his part in those murders was a little more hands-on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. yeah, and and Billy, he was just, he was a kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, 
we're done with her. We are. And I, what? I was going to say we were half joking earlier that she is an even worse mother than Diane Downs. Yes, I know, right? By a a long shot, I think. Yeah, she's definitely way more sadistic and Mm -hmm. prolonging of her abuse. Right. And, um, I mean, fuck, Diane Downs at least took her kids to the hospital after she shot them. Right. It's horrible to compare the two, but, like, you know, we go off what we know. Right. And those Mm -hmm. are the cases that we've done where the moms try to kill their kids or do kill their kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Well, speaking of Diane Downs, in a roundabout way, I picked our next case. And the only way it's at all relevant to Diane Downs is it's another Oregon case. We just have so many. I know. (laughs) And this is a serial killer. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I never heard of him. I read some article I can't, on some news thing where he was up for parole. He didn't get it. And I was like, and it said something like, Oregon serial killer up for parole. And I was like, what? And it wasn't, you know, Randy Woodfield. It wasn't Jerry Brutos who was dead. But you know what I mean? Like, I was like, who the heck is this? And uh, it's who we're doing next week. And he, I can't believe I've never heard of him. I mean, honestly, reading the book that we're reading, he has a really sordid past. I'd never heard of him either, so (laughs) it'll be an adventure for both of us. Yeah. So anyways, I was going to try – oh, here we go. Courtney, you made up one. I couldn't figure out a way to end this one, but you (laughs) did it. Okay. Courtney, what do we do when your mother tries to make you hurt your siblings or tries to handcuff you to a table or whatever? You go nuts, go as far away from home as possible – And then go to therapy. Good one. You have to go away from home in this case. Yes. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye. Okay. Just kidding. I have to add something really quick. Um, I was wrong about the John Wayne Gacy Guinness Book of World Record things. It was not how many people he killed. It was how many consecutive life sentences sentences he got. Ah. That's what he was in for. I think he got 21 consecutive life sentences sentences and I think that might still hold so I wanted to retract what I said last week about that because that was inaccurate information great correction okay see you next Tuesday Bye. bye